So here I am with uh, the guy that I really think is the the godfather of celebrancy around the world, uh, Dali Messenger. Dali, welcome, and uh, thank you for for spending the time to join me this evening, my time. It's tomorrow morning, your time, the joys of uh, interviewing somebody on the other side of the planet. I, I think it's something to do with the rotation of the sun and the... Um and a little bit to do with the moon, uh, Stuart, but this is what happens. <laughs> there you go. The, the Earth is, in fact, a sphere and not a flat plate sitting yeah. on the back of a turtle. No, that's right. Uh, so, Dally, you've been um, a celebrant since the, the 70s, and one of the first questions that uh, I wanted to ask you was, how do you see celebrancy has changed since you first started? Well, Stuart, it's extremely uh, amazing to contemplate how things have changed. Uh, one of the big changes, of course, is uh, to Australia itself. Um, in, in the 1970s and 60s, 90% uh, of people were either Catholics or Church of England. And I think there was something like 80% attendance at church. And if anyone like to get married or buried was you were an, you were more or less an outcast, and I can honestly, uh, when I reflect, there was no such thing as a secular funeral. Uh, when when a man died, or it was usually a man but a woman too, of course, um, if he died and said, "I don't want any religious drivel set over set over my." body at my funeral. I don't want any rubbish. So he, he goes ahead and he dies and the family says, well, what do we do? There, there was no alternative. And what happened with people who were really declared atheists and really, there were a couple of exceptions. The Communist Party occasionally said words over the, the everyone was buried in those days, uh, by the way, crematoria weren't really set up, but they go out to the graveside. And the, But it was extremely rare. Anyway, when Lionel Murphy uh, instigated marriage celebrants, um, people were, I can't describe how overjoyed they were that they didn't have to go along to a, a church or a registry, mainly a registry office, because uh, divorced people, divorced Anglicans, divorced Catholics, they just weren't catered for. So, but the registry office was a terrible place. Um, I don't want to uh, sort of dwell on it too much. So when Lionel Murphy says, well, I'm going to appoint these people, these good citizens, as uh, marriage celebrants, and they can marry you anywhere, anytime, any place you want, with any kind of ceremony you want. And you can choose your own celebrant. And, well, the, up to that time, you got married in a church. The parish priest said, who married you and so on. Anyway, the inevitable happened. Um, the inevitable happened, and one day, uh, you know, it was my lot. This young bride, who I thought was pretty thin at the time, you know, she, she, she didn't look too good to me, but I was too young then. I didn't have much intelligence about these things. Anyway, she dies six weeks after a marriage, and the young groom says to me, well, you're doing a funeral. I said, we don't do funerals. And I'd forgotten to mention before that what happened to the, to the 
atheist, declared atheist. They took him to the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army pressed a button and the um, some music was played and then they carried the body out to the cemetery and buried it without ceremony. Now, what had happened now, this, this couple I'd got to know, I'd done their marriage, and this is about 18 months, two years after the start of marriage, so he said, I don't, we don't do funerals. And he said, well, you're doing this one. So I said, you know, and, and, and people, it was a different uh, atmosphere then because people like um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross hadn't written their books and she hadn't done a tour of Australia. So people never talked about death. You, you know, it was sort of like taxes. You just didn't discuss it. So anyway, I got up and I thought, well, how do I do a, um, a non-religious funeral? Uh, which was a question. And um, an American uh, funeral director's wife asked me, how can you have a funeral without religion? Anyway, what I did was uh, I kind of be obvious to me. I said, said some words about her and, and her history and... I spoke about how I'd done the marriage and then fortunately she had something, I think she had the desiderata hanging on her her um, bedroom wall and she had something else, some other quote stuck on somewhere around the house. So I got those and I said, here's a couple of her favourite quotes. It was very corny really, <laughs> but, yep. uh, you know, I just... I just together bits and pieces about her and I quoted a couple of poems from the wedding and you know and and uh, when young people die is you know there's, there's really a big audience people yeah. come from everywhere and and at the funeral directors at Lapines at Fern Tree Gully a suburb of Melbourne uh, the funeral director for once had the, had the, had a bit of intelligence and he put a, some kind of a big deal in those days, put some kind of um, speaker outside the church, uh, outside their chapel because people couldn't fit in. Anyway, I, I did this funeral and afterwards it was a real revelation. Uh, I had a queue of people outside um, telling me, thanking me for giving her a non-religious funeral. Um and a couple of people were very insistent. Yes, listen here, mate. This is much more important than fucking marriages, you know. Blah blah. You know. I said, oh, okay. Dad, you know, you've got to keep doing this. Well, there was an enormous followed. So enormous controversy among the celebrants when uh, they got to know it because the president of the celebrants, I still remember her words, went on um, uh, went on. Uh, television and said, uh, I condemn Dolly Messenger for doing this funeral because uh, marriage celebrants are about marriage, uh, they're about uh, life, celebration and love, but they're not about misery and death. <laughs> so, uh, but it didn't take, so the, the marriage celebrants got intimidated and I had to go out because, oh, what I should tell you, suddenly the word got around and I started to get overwhelmed with a request for funerals. And I started to have to put my mind to how I did this in a 
professional way. Anyway, I formed formed a group of people, and when this president came out and attacked me and and them, uh, they retreated. You know, they 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 did a few funerals. So I had to go out and get non-marriage celebrants. Well, I had a couple of mates in the ABC and a couple of um, women friends that were were kind of interested. And we formed a group of about six people. Before long, we were, you wouldn't believe it. It was like the marriage celebrant business, the funeral celebrancy business, uh, profession, what, whatever you should call it. It just boomed. And uh, the, uh, it soon emerged, we, we were sort of overwhelmed and, and we soon realised, as you realise, and I know you and I have talked about this, it, it's the best work we do. You were bringing such comfort to people, you couldn't believe it. And uh, so it, 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 all, it all developed from there. Um, the co- controversy after, oh, I'd say four or five years, Everybody presumed, oh, Lionel Murphy, by the way, he was a judge of the High Court then, he come and said, Dally, this, this is more important than marriage and, and people should uh, be able to choose what they want and they should be able to um, contribute. Anyway, he helped me uh, kind of formulate a methodology of meeting with the family and taking notes and checking back and all that kind of thing. And um, we we still use that basic methodology now. Yeah, yeah, and it's a good methodology, isn't it? Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, uh, and and I remember when I came to England with um, not Carol Cook, uh, uh, Roberto Provasani, and so on. They said, I said, well, you check back. I found that you should check back the funeral with the, with the uh, family, and they said, oh no, you don't. You've got to make it a surprise. You know, if they've already heard it when they get to the chapel or the venue or the church, whatever, you, wherever you're doing it, um, you, they don't want to hear the thing twice. And I said, "Well, yes, they do." <laughs> so that was another that was another uh, uh, sort of development we had. You know, and, and so they tried reading it back, and they, and they said, "Would you like me to read back what I'm going to say?" Oh, yes, we do. Thanks. You know, and so. All those kind of things we, we ironed out by experience and uh, and then it kind of uh, grew from there. So now I think we do 82% of the funerals in Australia, um, except for, well, I did mention to you that 90% of people were Catholics and Anglicans. I think it's down to about 60% now are Catholics and Anglicans. And the big difference, Stuart, is... Um, even the ones that are Catholics and Anglicans don't go to church anymore. You know, the church attendance is very low. And the other big thing was after two or three years, uh, we started to realise that we were getting church people because they didn't want the church uh, one-size-fits-all ceremony. They wanted something meaningful said about yeah. the person who had died. They wanted music that they could choose. And so gradually we've kind of not won over, that's not quite the right word, but you know what I mean. Uh, we started to draw both uh, in weddings 
and in funerals, religious people. And they said the same, well, we just do the 23rd Psalm and this and that and the other, <laughs> Lord's Prayer. And so we said, well, we can't do that. We're secular celebrants. You know, we're civil celebrants. And you go to the church for that sort of thing. Uh, we don't want to, we, we want you to say the, <laughs> the 23rd Psalm. So there was a big controversy over that, whether civil celebrants um, could say religious words or actually perform a religious ceremony. And after a lot of discussion and controversy, they, we decided we could do it, but as an exception, because in those days, the line was pretty clear between, you know, religion and non-religion. So that's a bit I of a yeah, here in the UK, um, it's still 80% of funerals are uh, religious and only 20% are celebrants. And the, there's a big distinction between the, the formal humanists, um, what used to be called in the UK the Humanist Society and now mm. is called Humanists UK. And their rules are quite clear that they can't include any... Uh, items that might be an item of worship, <laughs> so the 23rd Psalm and that kind of thing. Um, whereas for, for us as independent celebrants, or as I prefer to call it, professional celebrants, hey, um, yeah, if, if a family want a, um, a, a full-on religious ceremony, then yes, go, to, go find a, a minister of, of your religion mm. who will deliver that. But if you want a, a hymn and a prayer um, or two hymns and a prayer, then you know what? I'm I'm fine with that, and actually, you know, I, I regularly take ceremonies that got mixture of religious elements because that's where the family are. There, there are Buddhist elements, Islamic yeah, elements, yeah, right. Christian elements, because people aren't quite so slotted into their niche anymore. Uh, and let me tell you something uh, that's uh, interesting, uh, and I think you'll find religion will decline. Uh, you know gradually or or, or, or um, quickly, I'm not quite sure, but um, de depends on funeral celebrancy in your neck of the woods. It's going to get, I can, I can kind of feel it in my bones again. If you handle the actual ceremony right, it'll get a, uh, get a leap of faith and the people get paid properly and so on. But let me tell you something about the British Humanist Association, which um, kind of has stuck up my nose a bit. They sent several delegations of humanists, uh, you know, three and four at a time, out to Australia to learn what we were doing. And I remember nice people. I took them around and, um, and I rang up because, you know, there was a, still a fairly small group. I'd say around about 50 or 60, mostly Melbourne, by the way, but it was slow to get to other places in Australia. But anyway, these British humanists came over and the Scottish humanists came over and I I was the contact person. I was National Secretary or something at the time. So I would ring up uh, Rick Barclay and say, Rick, have you got a funeral today? Yeah, where, where is it? And I'd ring Diane Story and say, have you got one? So I'd take them round to three or four funerals in a, in a day and they were saying... Yeah, but that, that person used religion. I said, yeah, look, we've decided we're not, we're not atheist celebrants. Uh, we're not 
we're, we're non-religious, but we're not anti-religious. We're basically, and this came after discussions with Lionel before he died, of course, we're community celebrants, really. We, we like the title civil celebrants uh, because our starting point is no religion. But if people want religion, and then we, then, then it started to emerge that, that some declared atheists still wanted the 23rd Psalm and stuff like that. Uh, so uh, gradually we kind of uh, evolved into um, really we're, we're, we're community-based and, uh, and with the same-sex marriage thing out in Australia recently, what happened was that the, um, uh, the, the, the government departments involved, some celebrants said, we're not going to do same-sex marriages. The majority said they were very, very happy to do so. So now in the uh, Same-Sex Marriage Act, which, whichever it is, there's a division. Um, celebrants have to declare whether they'll do same-sex marriages or they won't. And they're, this is so strange, but they're kind of now classed as religious marriages Religious civil celebrants and civil celebrants. You know. <laughs> so, That's uh, interesting. <clears throat> of course, in the in the UK, we're still waiting for the Law Commission to come up with their proposals for how marriage law in the UK is going to be reformed over the next few years, uh, and then we'll have to see whether the government uh, actually agrees with what they're proposing. So, yeah, we're we're a long way behind the Australian. Uh, system in terms of, of marriage. Mm. Uh, so what tends to happen here, of course, is the couple go to the register office and do the, the legal bit very yeah. simply, and then they have the ceremony, whatever they want, wherever they want, uh, with their family and friends. And uh, the, the celebrant takes a, a non-legal ceremony, but uh, a much more personal one than, than they yeah, can Yeah, well, it's, a, it's, it's got the psychological, the social and the, and the cultural uh, worth in it. And the, uh, there's a number of countries, as you know, that do this in Europe, you know, that automatically they go to a civil, then they go and do the church wedding. I think Holland yes. is one so it's, place. It's, yeah. it's the same, yeah, and in, and in France you go to the local town hall and do the, the legal bit and then have, whether it's a, a religious ceremony or a non-religious ceremony, that's separate from the, the legal marriage. Yeah, and, 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 and I would say that, that, well, you know, know this already, but it would seem everything depends on the quality of the ceremony. You can't go to a, a registry office and, uh, and by the way, this happens in Australia too. People suddenly want, um, for immigration laws, you know, suddenly a, yeah. a mate of mine brings in his Thai bride and they get married straight away in the registry office, which they don't have to do, which is really stupid in a way. But then they say, oh, we'll have a, we'll have a marriage ceremony with a celebrant later on. So you've got two civil weddings, so to speak, because people uh, still don't know. But, but it would seem to me that the, um, it would seem to me that uh, the future for celebrants in the United Kingdom is in the quality of the marriage ceremony that follows the registry office. Uh, and, and to really put the time into it, um, you really need to be paid properly. But 
my you know my wife says well you've got to imagine that you're giving you've been given ten thousand pounds or ten thousand dollars or whatever to do the very best celebrant but just pretend you're being paid properly and then see what you come up with you know like a, and then and then everything's in there you know there's um you know music and poetry and symbolism and the personal story of the couple is and their uh, development of their relationship and and what what their hopes are for the future and what they love about each other and you know you can but the point is it's terribly time consuming so yeah. kim kirkley one of uh, my students in new york she's got on her website you can look it up i haven't seen it for a while but she's got uh i will you know i'll marry you a uh, short marriage no more than 10 people, weekdays, whatever, costs you $300. Um, at the weekends, $500. She's got a three-tiered system. And, yeah. and, and you know, I, I tried to get the Australian celebrants to do it because I think it makes sense. Because people ring up and say, how much do you charge for a wedding? And you, say, you know, you just say, well, what do you want? And... In the end, it gets down to, and this applies to funerals as well, the only fair way to pay a celebrant or anyone else, you know, golf pro, your fitness trainer, your uh, massage person, your uh, washing machine mechanic, they all accept this, except we're, we're a little bit behind. I'm talking about Australia now. An hourly rate is the only fair way. And you can give people a... For a funeral now, I charge between fifteen hundred and two and a half thousand dollars. And if they and I said, well, if you, if they're kind of fairly educated people, and say, look, we want to do the eulogy, I said, well, good. That that'll um, uh, if you if you're really ha happy and confident and you're together enough, that's fine. That'll cost you a lot less. I'll keep track of my hours, and uh, um, and no one ever objects to it. No one, you know. Like, the funeral directors no, I, go, go crazy over it, you know. But uh, here I'm 84 and I did a, I did a funeral the other day. I got $2,000, I forget what it was. And I've found the funeral director who will respect that. And, uh, and these people, a lot of them are running around doing short funeral ceremonies, not really doing justice to the person. And they... Um, you know, they get a lot less money, but they get the jobs from the funeral director because the funeral director likes to set their fees, which is terribly unprofessional. I mean, uh, you know, like like uh, they go along to one funeral, funeral firm I know that's got six different names. People think they're going to different funeral directors. And, and they say, well... This person is very poor, you know. We want the, uh, you know, we want the most reasonably priced funeral. He says, "Oh, look, we know a celebrant who who who's very compassionate. He'll drop the price, and we know a um, florist, you know, and that this pe these people never drop their own fee, but they pretend to be helping somebody by getting a cheap celebrant, and of course." Cheap celebrants mean cheap ceremonies. And uh, I think this is the biggest challenge throughout the world, actually. 
because too many people without qualifications, without any training, without any kind of, which is bad enough, but they haven't got the sensitivity to even kind of get the feel of it. So um, they, uh, you know, somehow or other, uh, somehow or other the quality celebrants have to present themselves to the world as doing a professional job. And you, you fought a battle um, and, and ended up being taken to court by uh, the anti-competitive practice. I can't remember yeah, what yeah, exactly yeah, what it yeah, was called yeah, in Australia. Uh, Competition Consumer uh, Commission. Uh, it was the most absurd injustice I've ever experienced. Um, a friendly... What, what they did, they when I asked the funeral directors, and we're all tied to funeral directors then, I asked yeah. them to that they had, their fee hadn't increased for four years. They decided the fee, and for a lot of them, it was same same for a clergy person who's supported by a community. So I wrote to them and said, um, "Would you please increase your your fee, the fee that you've decided on for us?" And I said. And, and I'd done this two or three times before, and Barry Densley had done it too. If you don't increase the fee, um, well, we'll increase it ourselves because we have no power to increase the fee then in the context because they advertise hundreds of thousands of dollars a day and come to us, we'll look after you. And so they had, they had the power. So it was a bluff letter. It was a bluff letter. And they accused me of attempting to set prices in the funeral industry. And I, I kind of laughed at first. And I said, I don't set, I can't set price. The funeral director set the price. But what, I'd, what I surmise happened was a pretty vicious public servant, a right-wing public servant in Canberra, had some kind of relation or friend in the ACCC, and they said, give this deli messenger a serve. You know, he's... He's, uh, I suppose they said he's a thorn in our side because I very politely and very diplomatically had made some criticism of the Attorney General's department. And this woman in charge of the department had took, taken it very, you know, it was moderate criticism, forget what it was about now, but she took it very seriously. And the next thing I know, I'm up before the ACCC. And how I know this happened was, she let, she, this particular woman in the Attorney General's Department went along to a meeting and told people she'd, she'd referred complaints to her to the ACCC. Well, the ACCC, they're, they're a monstrous organisation that deals with big business monopolies and competition. And everyone, everyone was full of wonderment. What, what was I doing there? And the thing was somebody... A friendly QC came along and he said, um, pro bono, I'll, I'll represent you pro bono, but you've got to do as I say. And I, and I had a couple of friends solicitors and they said, yeah, look, just do what he says. So he went in there and unbeknownst to me, he's, he pleaded guilty on a, to technically breaking the law and 
agreeing to a fine of $45,000. I mean, to this day, I haven't got over it. You know, I just think, you know, the, the rottenness and corruption that sometimes occurs in government uh, is really beyond the pale. And if I hear of someone yelling injustice by some government department or other, I'm full of sympathy and empathy. <laughs> In the UK, we have a, a situation where, again, basically the Church of England charges a fee. It's about £200 um, and says that's what it will cost for a minister to, to turn up and take a funeral. Yeah, And they're basing that on the, the vicar's time to arrive, deliver the funeral from the prayer book uh, and go home. Uh, all of the uh, ongoing pastoral care of the family is is not included in that £200 and there's no real prep time included because there's yeah. no eulogy. And all of the funeral directors in the UK are basically saying, well, if the Church of England can do it for £200, then so can celebrants. And in some areas it goes down to 150 and Sometimes it goes up to 250, maybe 300. But, yeah, it's basically based around the Church of England's number and it's not comparing apples with apples. It's, it's no. a very, very different thing. Can I tell you a little story on this? I heard of course this last week. Uh, the uh, friend of mine who's a very good celebrant and who has a personal following goes along with the funeral director, but what what... Uh, they're paying now in Australia is $690, you know, divide that by two and you get the pounds, about 350 pounds, I suppose. Uh, and she she does a really good job and she's, she's in her 60s or early 70s now, but she still does the work and uh, she's a widow, so she, she can stay up nights till two o'clock in the morning and she can get it right and... She still obeys all the standards that we set years ago. Um, but but what she tells me, she's good at it. You know, she's got a plan how to do a eulogy and uh, she starts off with the chronology of the person's life and then she gets on to what sort of personality they have. And and she, she knows what questions to ask. So she said, look, she doesn't mind getting only 690, I said. You're nuts, you know. But anyway, she's happy with it. And but what happened was, she's the, the local funeral directors have a preferred list of celebrants. Uh, number one, if one number one's not available, they get number two, number three. And anyway, this this particular lady's uh, this particular lady's grand granddaughter got a job at this funeral home. And I, this friend of mine helped get her the job, I think. And so she gets in there, and uh, she she looks at the uh, she looks at the records when no one was looking. Oh well, I don't think they cared. And she said, "Grand," she rang up a, a grandma. She said, "Grandma, I shouldn't be telling you this, but you're you charge six ninety, but you're still number one on their preferred list." But so and so only charges six hundred, and so and so only charges three hundred, and so and so only charges five hundred. I mean, they've had a bidding war, you know. Like, uh, and and of course, 
she's still top of the tree because at least those two or three funeral directors that like are prepared to pay more money than they need to pay, uh, not much more but a little bit more, because she does the job so well. And me, I, I just give them away altogether. I, you know, I write to uh, – well, I used to. I don't do any more. Um, I used to write to my constituents and say, this is, this is what happens out in the marketplace. So if you, you in your family or any of your friends ask, uh, if they want the job done properly, the only fair way is to pay somebody like me an hourly rate. And if I can't do it, I'll find someone who'll promise me they'll do the job well and, and I'll negotiate a price. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's where I am. But there's, most of them are still in the system, you know, if they want, want the work. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, still, it's, still a, it's an ongoing battle, Stuart, but it's one worth fighting, I think. It is, and, and you know, which I'm getting more and more business coming straight to me because families have seen me working yeah. with them. And, you know, and I say to them, are you prepared to, to pay by the hour? And I've had 100%. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, no, no problem. And, but the the yeah. public, the families are no problem, you know, and uh, and they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't hesitate, you know. It's uh, yeah, yeah, good for you, mate. Yeah, great. <laughs> so, looking back, what advice would you give to your younger celebrant self? Um, I. Uh, that's a good one. Um, well. I think I'd give the advice that I've learnt by experience. I've started to realise how important this work is. You know, I've never, never lost that conviction. So I would, I think, going back to my lum, uh, younger self, I the big thing I'd say is what we've just been discussing. You should have fought the financial battle a lot earlier uh, because I've stuck with it because, you know, I started with it. I got the opportunity with Lionel Murphy and so on. Um, but uh, I've never been paid enough and I've seen people with much easier jobs. And, and so the first thing I would have said to myself, what we were just talking about, establish an hourly rate and publicise yourself to friends, family, acquaintances, um, any way you can, and let them know what is happening in the funeral industry. And that, that's the first thing I, I, I do. And then the next thing I do is the importance of skills. I mean, whatever, whatever people that just say, oh, I'll become a funeral celebrant and earn some extra money, I mean, it does require a skill set. And the funerals that I've seen, I've been appalled by at times, though, Sometimes the, the people have been quite happy. But, you know, what you need for starters, you need, as you've got, Stuart, I've noticed today, listen, listening skills. Learn how to listen. Focus on listening. Uh, you know, you can take notes, as you, people always agree to that, but you need to um, really develop that skill. When I first started, oh, God, I kept butting in and giving my experience, oh, you know, when I think about it, <laughs> I, I nearly go back to it. But 
that's the first thing. And the next, uh, the next skill that you'll need is creative writing. Um, you need to be able to put together a sermon, not just a eulogy, but you need to uh, uh, you need to write continuity uh, and introductions and and comments, very brief ones during the ceremony to keep the flow. And you need uh, you need a certain um, sharpness in in regard to organising. Uh, the the main the main part that I've realised is readers. So I've learnt the hard way that you do the eulogy first. If you're doing the eulogy, um, you do the eulogy first, and then people with reminiscences can come up. And if you've got three or four or five people with reminiscences about the person, you need to have a meeting. You don't need a full rehearsal. But now and again you do if it's a state funeral or something like that. But but with the um, when you've got other participants, readers or rem- reminiscences, <laughs> uh, you need to you need to, to brief people. Say, well, you, a, a you've got to write you've got to write the your reminiscence out. You've got to read the bit of poetry you're going to do through. So I tell my younger self to be better organised as you bring in other people who are amateurs, so to speak, so they don't read too fast and they are prepared. They don't speak, one guy did once for half an hour, ex corde, you know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, you know all, that, all that's deadly, uh, you know, it's really deadly. And another thing you don't do, which I did a couple of times and I've seen other people do, would anyone else like to say a few words, you know? <laughs> It is a nightmare. What I tend to do is, 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 what I tend to do is put the reminiscences first, the the family tributes I have first, and then I've got the eulogy, so that if somebody did overrun, I can cut bits out of the eulogy to bring us back on time. Well, if it worked, if that works for you, that's fine. I found the reverse works for me. I get the eulogy out, and if they repeat something, they repeat it in their own words and it's emphasis. But it, it, it's not a. I don't find it a problem in practice. But I've just worked it that way. And you know, you you, you need continuity. You need uh, uh, you need um, certain intelligent organising so that you you're confident that it's going to all come together and they're going to be happy with it. The other thing is, well, we can't, I can't really say this because technologically there's been such advance. Uh, on my desk here, um, I've got one of those music speakers. You know, it's about that, that size and I can play something from my computer with amazingly good sound. Well, when we first started the celebrants, there was no such thing as microphones, uh, portable, battery-driven microphones, I mean. There was no such thing as musical equipment. I think the Ghetto Blaster came in in the early 90s or something, you know, and that, that was our first. And the only music you could have would be live music or organ music, you know, and then you had to be a place in a place where an organ was. But 
you know, uh, technologically things have improved now. And the other thing that's come in, and I guess I know it'll be the same with you, people put slide predictions of all the of photos from the person's life. That, you know, I mean, even 15 years ago that was, you know, kind of unheard of, you know, and uh, so, you know, there's been... I suppose I, I can't berate myself uh, for not doing music well and so on in earlier days because we just didn't have the equipment. The other thing I think is important that that I really had to nail down after a while is that people don't live in isolation. Uh, people live as part of history. And I did this funeral for a 100-year-old woman once uh, back a few years now, but I still remember it. And I had had to do the whole. Um, I put it in. The, I had to put it in the context of history because I didn't have any information. I didn't have enough information to do the eulogy properly. Uh, but I, I could go through and say, well, she saw the first rugby league game in the Northern Union, <laughs> you know, and then. You know, they went in through the First World War and the Great Depression and the Second World War and the, and the um, post-war reconstruction, you know, and going back to the invention of radio, you know, the, well, the popularity of radio and then, and then the arrival of television. And, you know, to, to know that last hundred years of history in the context of that person's life and also, you know, things like in Australia, the Victorian railways, that, that was the way people got around, you know, and no information of no use to you, but when I put it in the context of that, um, you, you give the ceremony a certain richness um, and, and also um, pe- people get the eulogy and it's part of their family history. And so I, I kind of think I've realised the importance of, of history and the other, the other thing that's very important, um, you meet people, you, you, well, you know what they're like, a family, someone's died. Nothing worse could have happened. It's just death. There's nothing good you can say about death. It just We can't control it. Uh, but when persons die, the only thing you can do is pay them proper tribute. Now, they're all at sea and uh, what... What a good celebrant is, and I'm sure you teach this in your course, is a resource person. You have to have a pretty wide knowledge of music. Um, and, you you know, you can't just play We'll Meet Again every funeral. <laughs> you know? and, and or My Way by Frank Sinatra. <laughs> my Way by Frank Sinatra, yeah. And there was another one, uh, uh, Amy Winehouse or The Bird or something. Anyway... Uh, you know, you, you, you know, you, you've got to put a list of twenty songs or so in front of them and say, "Well, which one would you like? Which one would he like?" You, in other words, you've got to have resources, and you've got to be able to suggest uh, poetry and, uh, and quotations and uh, um, that, that would help them. And um, so, I, I, that all that um, uh, all that business of, you know, knowing history and so on um, is um, I, I think it's terribly important because it, 
kind of the, the historical thing brings everybody into the orbit of that person's life. Uh, so that's what I'd, uh, I, I would say. I wished I knew knew my history better when I started. It. <laughs> so, uh, and um, and the other thing too, I don't know uh, what I've discovered most among my students when I've gone out to listen listen to them do ceremonies. They almost always speak too fast when they're reading. Sometimes the family might say, would you read this uh, bit of uh, poetry or, or whatever, uh, and, uh, or just speaking the eulogy. You know, ceremonial pace, ceremonial ceremonies have their own pace and talking too fast is not, is not good. You know, like when, and when you're reading a poem, you know, he was my north, my south, my south, my east, and my west. My working week and my Sunday rest. He was my north, my south, my east, and west, my working week, my Sunday rest. You know, like, ah, stop, 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 stop. There's no time for it to sink in. Um, yeah. So I started to realise when I watched others, I was too fast and I used to bring people along and this is what I recommend and I recommend you recommend. When people do a wedding ceremony or a funeral ceremony, they bring along some friend who will be, usually, usually a spouse is pretty good because they, um, to, to say what they liked and what they didn't like and what went over well and what didn't go over well, mentoring from the, from the grassroots, if you like, and I think that's uh, no matter what you do in your your course or what I do in my course, um, uh, you know, the, the, when they get out there in the marketplace, uh, they need honest criticism. It, it's sometimes a bit hard to bear; it's a bit humiliating, but you need to um, suffer it uh, and. Um, My, what, my former wife said to me one day, there's a legal bit you've got to say in Australia, you know, called the monotum. And I think it's terribly boring. And she said, if you're going to read it as the law requires you to do, you've got to pretend it has some meaning. <laughs> well, it does too. <laughs> so she picked me up that I had put a lot of meaning into something, but, you know, I thought I'll rattle this off, you know. So... You know, that's that's the kind of thing you pick up, you know. So, uh, I think one other thing I've learnt that I'd, I'd, uh, I had no idea of when I first started was choreography. Yeah. Now, I don't know, have you been to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Arlington, Virginia? I haven't, no. No. It's a must. It's a must, mate. You're not far away. you just got to fly across to America. Um, but on the hour, every hour, there's a ceremony to honour the unknown soldier. And there's not a word spoken. It's all choreography. It's 21 steps. There's the presentation of arms. There's the, you know, the, the, the unfurling of flags, you know, 
but everything's done with great precision, and it's it really is awe inspiring, you know. And the and the the soldiers that do it, um, they their shoes are shined and their their brasses, you know, is 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 in place and. You know their their uniforms are spotless, and and they come out and they take the job terribly seriously. What well, what hit me? It's a whole ceremony that's choreography, and it's famous throughout the world. And people come there, and and the sergeant at arms comes out and says, "This is I'm the sergeant at arms. I'm very proud to be here, and this is what you've got to do." So what I'm saying is um, it's very important that you handle choreography properly. I mean, going up, bowing to the bowing to the coffin, taking your place at the rostrum, uh, giving people a few seconds to settle down, all those little gestures are important and... Uh, I still remember, and, and, you know, if you do a public ceremony, like I've done about six state funerals, and they're a big deal. You go with the protocol of the Prime Minister's Department and so on. And, uh, well, I, I, I'd like to make the point that it's important for everybody, but take take your, your end, Winston Churchill, you know, Big Ben chimes, you know, there's a 21-gun salute. Uh, there's uh, the gun carriage comes out, you know, with the soldiers each side. I mean, all those kind of symbols. Um, symbolism has really got a certain uh, importance too. And in other words, I think, I think I'm making the case even again today to you that it really requires quite a good skill set. And what annoys me, what really annoys the shit out of me, is when you get somebody on television and saying, well, we said we're not recommending the Bachelor of Arts anymore because it's the humanities and it doesn't give you any skills for anything. And I put up my hand and say, you stupid bastard. The humanities are the most, one of the most important skills you can have, you know, knowledge of music, knowledge of literature. Because you you can become a celebrant, or you, or you, you know, you, and 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 people's memories, the the richest things are in their in their lives are when they get married. They never forget it. Um, you know, ceremonies. The church used to do it. The scouts movement used to do it. And there's a big there's a big uh, vacuum there, where we as community people need to develop ceremonies, all kinds of ceremonies, to enrich people's lives, give them memories, um, uh, give them a sense of self-worth through acknowledging them, a sense of identity, you know, everything that's important to the human being is the kind of thing we do in our job as celebrants. Um, I mean, there's other things that are important as well. I'm not saying that, but you know, this is <laughs> that you know, not one-eyed. You know, I, th- I think uh, you know, solar panels are important, and, and yeah, climate change and so on. 
But in the in human lives, you know, we've got a. a some people miss out. They don't. They don't. They don't get married. They live together. Um, you know, they don't. They read to leave in their will. They're not to have any kind of ceremony when they're dead. You know, and that that appeals to them, but it doesn't work. You know, for most people. Well, you and I um, both have come from a, a, a religious ministry place. Background, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I fundamentally believe that the rites of passage are core to who we are as human beings. You go back yeah. 300,000 years and, and we still have evidence of burial ceremony. It's mm. not just bodies being you know, yeah. chucked out. It's, there's, there's funeral ceremonies happening for as long as we've been homo sapiens. Yeah. Um, and, and was it last year or the year before? One of the most moving things I saw is a, a baby little boy, two and a half years old, uh, buried with toys, he was swaddled, his head was on a pillow. Mm. That grave was 72,000 years old. You know, somebody helped that young couple say goodbye to their child mm. 72,000 years ago. We're, we're the oldest profession, clearly. Yeah. And, and it, it, is, it is an in the round thing. It isn't just you know, funerals or just weddings. I think the best celebrants are the people who've trained to do both because you yeah. understand ceremony. You understand yeah, yeah. the choreography, as you say. Mm, mm. Your wedding choreography, the celebrant has yeah. to understand how to position the bride and groom yeah, yeah, so that everybody else can see what's going on and the photographer. Absolutely right. Actually, I think it was the – and you're, you're spot on there and I agree with, with everything you say – uh, but just add this, which you just a, cl a clarity thing. The 1917 Encyclopedia Britannica uh, answered the question. I think it was the 1917 Encyclopedia Britannica, which was the authority of all authorities before Wikipedia came along. <laughs> uh, the definition of the the moment that Ape became Homo sapiens was in the burial of the dead. You know the Aborigines and so on with the ochre and they and they smeared do, uh, paint on the body and so on. Um, and and as you you just said, uh, you know that we've got evidence of this, but that was the definition. You know, like evolutionary. Well, when when actually did when actually did uh, the ape and throw publicus whatever you know became Homo sapiens, a man um, was when when he began burying his dead. That was the definition. So we do go back a long way. We go back. To we go back a long way. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Point one, yeah. <laughs> so what three pieces of advice would you give to somebody who's thinking about training to be a celebrant? Um, yeah, that's, that's good. Three pieces of advice would be, the first piece of advice would be to get a clear, oh, well, the first piece of advice is do training. Don't think, you know, everyone's got blind spots. Don't think you can walk into it uh, knowing what to do because what you do is you make a lot of mistakes. If you're intelligent, you learn from them, but it's victim-based learning. 
You know, it's it's uh, you learn from stuffing up somebody else's very important ceremony. So uh, you need to do good training, not, and you can't do it in a weekend. You, you know, there's a certain depth to it. With the things we were discussing today, that's the first thing I do. Um, the next thing I do is get a construct and uh, on how to communicate. Like if you if you're um, you're selling insurance or something, and you go around to your relatives and sell sell them insurance, people just dread dread the knock on the door. They don't want to know you, but if you're a celebrant, everybody wants to know. They've got a celebrant in the family or in their family of friends. And so develop your own constituency. That's the second uh, bit of advice. The third bit of advice is be courageous up front and definitive, making sure you get paid properly. Because if you don't, in the end, and I've trained hundreds of wonderful celebrants in my time, and after a while, I say, Dally, we can't keep this up anymore. This, to do it properly is too demanding. I don't want to do it half-baked ceremonies, you know. So goodbye. Um, nice knowing you, you know. That they, there's, so, but if you get paid properly, you, you, you can continue, you know. You can make it your life's work. And um, the big problem is the advertising money of the funeral directors. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of good funeral directors, nice people, but they're all stuck in the system where they're in control and you're a lackey of theirs. But uh, the third thing I say, yeah, I've invented three things, uh, Stuart. <laughs> there's three bits of good advice, I hope. Yeah. What, I, what did I just say? Training? Um, uh, and, um, constituency. Yeah, constituency. That's right. Training, constituency, and uh, and and payment. Yeah. Payment. I might write that down. <laughs> 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 yeah. And, and you know, Dowie, I, I really appreciate your time. Uh, you, you've you've been one of my heroes, and, and when we had the chance to to meet up in Melbourne, uh, yeah, in that was that was a great that, meeting. Yeah, good stuff. It was lovely, and I really appreciate that. So, so my final question for you, what hopes and dreams do you have for the future of civil celebrancy? Well, I suppose my main hope is, um, I mean, here we have the Russians now making noises at, at the Ukraine and, you know, we've got war and we've got, um, a, you know, sort of demonstrations all over the world and, We've got this farcical situation in America where even democracy is threatened. I, I put a lot of that down to the fact that the culture that which, which once uh, was provided by the church um, inadequately but, but certainly a contribution has now got to be replaced with something. And my hope is that civil celebrants are... Uh, and people like you and I, we we make we we inspire people to see that this is really needed in the world for a for a peaceful world, for a uh, a, a, a world with values, a world with a respect, a world with compassion, 
We every ceremony we remind ourselves of these values. We reinforce them, um, and we communicate them, and, and and that's what keeps the fragile human being on track. So my my dream for the world is that uh, that we somehow we can replace what we've lost uh, from the churches and from um, you know other like the scouting movement and other things like that. That we we make that contribution, and the, the the and I think I often think of the Jews this way. The Jewish people say, oh, "I'm not a very much a practicing Jew," or, you know, but I, but I um, occasionally go to the synagogue. But they got something on every weekend, you know. There's some ritual or some ceremony, and and that's what distinguishes them. You know, they they they're a community group, and you don't. I wish I had more statistics on this, but you don't hear of youth suicide much in the Jewish community or all sorts of other uh, problems that, that uh, a non-cultured society has. So I'm hoping that we as celebrants can contribute to a, a rich and honest culture uh, which doesn't, isn't tied to dogma uh, or, or, you know, the, the consensus of human beings uh, in the end, decides on what's good, you know, and uh, and then we should, when we've made that kind of decision, we should spread it. And the way we spread it is through when we get together for what is known as a ceremony. So that's, my, that's my wish. <laughs> Thank you. And you, you've stepped, uh, you know, I, I could almost have primed you for that one. That's yeah, a concept yeah. that I call you know, civil celebrants or professional celebrants. We are a priesthood for the for this generation. Yeah, yeah, we are, and 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 we don't we don't have a package deal. Yeah. You know, you can stay yourself. You can be honest with yourself. You don't have to believe anything we require. You know, we're not a cult. You know, we're we're somebody that wants to draw out of you the. Thing, the virtues you think are good, the values you think are good, and help you express them and strengthen them. And uh, and we, we we don't impose anything, you know. And uh, we we just help you create what 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 you in the end recognise as good and inspiring and helpful and all the rest. So uh, yeah, you and I are of one mind here, Stuart. <laughs> I feel very honoured for, for you to say that. No, it's mutual, mate. It's mutual. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And you celebrated, uh, yeah, your 84th birthday recently, oh, so I happy did. birthday. Oh, thank you very much for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're coming too quick these days. Yeah, but <laughs> anyhow, I'm, I'm, I'm in good nick. I've had uh, some health problems, but I'm over them and uh, hope to keep making a contribution for quite a while yet. Good. Good, good, good. I'm. Thank you so much, Dally, for your time today. I really appreciate it, and um, I really hope that you continue on with your work for a, a long time, as long as you want to. Thank you, Stuart. You've complimented me greatly by uh, this uh, wonderful interview across the across the seas. <laughs> across the seas. There we go. Then uh, we meet up again sometime. There we go.